is one that if you don't cry at, you're a heartless demon and you need to be banished from planet Earth. I'm as mad as hell and I'm not going to take this anymore. So you lie to yourself to be happy. There's nothing wrong with that. We all do it. We all go a little mad sometimes. Come on. One of you nuts has got any guts. What's but a smile on that face? You're only as healthy as you feel. Listen to me! Listen to you by what right? Because I have a right to be and I have a voice! Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Pop Culture Case Study. Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let's let the healing begin. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, where we analyze pop culture from a psychological angle, a part of the following films network. And this week, um, for the release of The Glass Castle, we are taking a look at that director and actress's uh, first movie together, and that is Short Term 12. So we're looking at Short Term 12 and juvenile delinquency. And to do that, I have a return guest, a very quick return guest. Uh, We have Mr. Nerdista coming back uh, after doing our uh, Edgar Wright episode uh after doing scott pilgrim he's back to talk about short-term 12 so thanks for being here yeah man thank you for having me back oh yeah of course happy happy to have you back um so uh before we get started uh why don't you tell people again about your youtube channel and maybe what's up there right now that they can check out cool yeah so i mean if you caught the scott pilgrim episode i I make video essays uh, twice a month on youtube uh, I recently, yesterday, hit 5,000 subscribers, and there's a new video up. And it's not film related, but it's still got cinematic elements to it. So, I mean, if you want to check it out, it's Mr. Nadista uh, on YouTube or Twitter or wherever you want to find me. Nice. And also, if you like what you see there and you want to support it with your dollars, uh, he has a Patreon page as well, uh, so you can support you. him there. So, so check that out. All right, so before I jump into the psychology of juvenile delinquency, do you have a couple movie recommendations for us? Yes, I have two. And bear with me on the first one, because it <laughs> might be a bit of a reach. Okay, I like Boys it. in the Hood. Oh, okay. All right. There's definitely purely, some juvenile delinquency yeah. in there, for sure. Yeah, and, and purely because, I mean, it focuses on two young characters, and, you know, they're tempted by, you know, the more negative aspects of their neighborhood, and... We, we don't really get the background of some of the characters in Short Term 12, but you can see that maybe they've had those influences in their past as well, which has, you know, led them to, to where they are now. So, I mean, as well, it's, it, it's also like a gateway into understanding grief and pressure in young minds. And yeah, so there's elements there. And I know that Short Term 12 isn't a debut film from the director, but it's a sophomore Right effort and and Boys in the Hood was a debut, but they're very similar in that they're both they both are kind of amateur, which I love. Right, yeah, and yeah. it's it's amateur, and we'll talk about this more later when we get to Short Term Twelve. But but mm. I think you could see the seeds of some real talent there. I mean, definitely with John Singleton, it's he's a, he's another one's had kind of a weird career uh, where right. he started out so hot uh, in making yeah. Boys in the Hood, which which I would definitely highly recommend as well. I think it's interesting. I've just been finishing up watching uh, Hannibal, the TV series, and okay, uh, yeah. Lawrence Fishburne plays a pretty major part in that show. And I think he's one of those actors we forget about. I think, you know, it, it feels like he's one of those actors who kind of made his money. You know, he went the, the kind of the Matrix route, uh, which yeah. not to say that the Matrix doesn't have some interesting things to say. It does, but it's definitely a blockbuster. And he kind mm. of went down this route of just like, I'm just going to play Lawrence Fishburne 
in, yeah. in everything I do. Um, but my God, in Boys in the Hood, like such a powerful performance. I think yeah. he is the performance that ties that movie together because you have all Definitely. these very young performances that, that could get to this point where you're just like, oh, it's just a bunch of kids. Like, I don't know if I can get into this, but like the father figure stuff and everything that's mm-hmm. going on with him and Angela Bassett playing the mom, like that is a movie I think that especially maybe with, uh, with younger viewers, like people that weren't, you know, either watching movies or even alive when Boys in the Hood came out. I think it's something yeah. that should definitely be checked out. Like that is an impressive film in general, but for a debut film, that's that's crazy. Yes. So it's yeah, cra- it's great. Yeah, so it's, it's a phenomenal achievement as well. But in regards to my second film, it's less relevant toward the theme, but and it's a very obvious choice. It's Room 2015. Oh, of course. Room of, yeah. with, not just because Brie Larson's in it, but I mean, it's exploration of trauma and, and heartache and, you know, a celebration of life amidst negative things happening. And I, I, I don't know, I just see such strong connections between that and Short Term 12. And it's also that film was why, um, I mean, Short Term 12 was why Brie Larson was casted for Room. Apparently, yeah. um, and I think you can see it <laughs> yeah, in watching definitely. this movie, yeah. Well, Len- Lenny Abramson, who directed Room, said that, I, I don't think she had an audition. He was auditioning actresses and then mm. happened to watch Short Term 12. And he oh, was just like, how Brie Larson in this film? <laughs> <laughs> we're done here. I don't, I don't need to audition. We can get our, we're done. And, and that, you know, I definitely have my qualms with Room. I don't think, I, mm. I think it's a good movie. I don't think it's a great movie. But I think uh, Brie Larson gives the performance uh, that carries that movie. Yeah. Uh, but we'll talk about more. I think uh, I think she got her Oscar late, and and that's 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 yes. what I'm going to say. Yeah. All right. Uh, so thank you for those recommendations. Both very good recommendations, mm-hmm. and uh, we will take a break, and I'll talk about juvenile delinquency, and then we'll come back and talk about short term twelve. Hello, my name is Andrew. I'm the host of The Last New Wave, the podcast that looks at the wide and varied nature of Australian cinema. If you've ever seen an Australian film and thought, man, I wish more people could see that, then this show aims to do just that. By bringing you reviews of the latest Australian films, as well as retrospective looks at notable and forgotten films from Australia's history, The Last New Wave aims to help further the audience of Australian cinema. We also aim to deliver looks behind the scenes with interviews with directors, producers, and actors of Australian films, such as the director of The Man from Hong Kong, Brian Trenchard-Smith, and the director of all this mayhem, Eddie Martin. So, make sure to check out The Last New Wave by heading over to AB filmreview.com for episodes or following on twitter or facebook at the last new wave okay so today for the psychology section we're going to be talking about juvenile delinquency so basically this is just in its most general form any illegal behavior committed by minors and most legal systems have some specific procedure for dealing with juveniles and these include uh, juvenile detention centers A juvenile delinquent in the U.S. is a person under the age of 18, although 17 in a couple states, and they commit an act that otherwise would be charged as a crime if they were an adult. So depending on the type and the severity of the offense committed, it's possible for people under 18 to be charged and actually treated as adults. And an interesting fact is juvenile offending can be considered pretty normal adolescent behavior, and this is because a lot of teenagers tend to offend by committing nonviolent crimes, and usually only once or a few times, and only during that period of time. So repeated or violent offending is much more likely to lead to later and more violent offenses. So when this happens, the offender usually will have displayed some sort of antisocial behavior even before reaching the age, the teenage or the adolescent age. Now, juvenile delinquency can usually be separated into three categories. 
One, delinquency, uh, crimes committed by minors that are dealt by juvenile courts on the justice system. Two, criminal behaviors dealt with by the criminal justice system and status offenses. And they're only classified this way because you're a minor, like truancy, like not going to school uh, when you're supposed to. You can't really get in trouble for that as an adult. So what about uh, other things that affect juvenile delinquency? So there's, there's definitely a gender interaction that goes on. So juvenile delinquency occurrences by men are way more common than the rate of occurrences by women. And this kind of reinforces these traditional aspects of masculinity like violence, aggression, and competition. But things are changing a little bit. Women now face many more obstacles in today's society and some of these problems as adolescents. And some of these problems are more difficult uh, when when the youth are actually faced with them. This includes uh, much more physical and sexual abuse, neglect, and exploitations. Uh, and exploitation, these are usually found in the background of female juvenile offenders. But there are very few resources that are available to girls who are faced with these problems. So they have higher rates of committing these status offenses like truancy, breaking curfew, and running away from home. They're also more likely to commit uh, status offenses than violent offenses, and female offenders are less likely than, than males to be arrested and formally charged for most of these offenses. But if the young female is actually charged, she's more likely than the male offender to be sentenced to secure confinement. Another difference that comes up is in, in racial makeup. So there's definitely like a skewing going on in the racial statistics for juvenile offenders. So um, these statistics state that Black and Latino and white teens are more likely to commit juvenile offenses. But it's important to keep the following in mind. So there are lots of other things like poverty that are large predictors of things like um, parents not monitoring as closely, harsher parenting, and association with peer groups that are, are delinquents as well, like, like gang activity. So these are all, these all have an effect on juvenile offending. And the majority of adolescents who live in poverty are racial minorities. Also, minorities who do offend, even as adolescents, are more likely to be arrested and punished more harshly by the law if they're caught. This is particularly true concerning nonviolent crime when compared to white adolescents. While poor minorities are more likely to commit violent crimes, a third of affluent teens report committing violent crimes themselves. This ethnic minority status has been included as what we call a risk factor of psychosocial maladaptation in a bunch of studies. There's at least four listed here. And it represents this huge disadvantage for these individuals. So the relationship between delinquency and race is really complex and can be explained by these other variables like poverty. But the total arrest rate for black juveniles aged 10 to 17 is more than twice that of white juveniles. This does not, and and this this isn't something where um, we can explain it away in, in any other fashion. We just mentioned that a lot of affluent white teens have admitted to violent crimes. They're either not getting caught or not getting punished or both. So as a comparison base, in 2012, there were 3,362 arrests of white juveniles for every 100,000 white people aged 10 to 17 in the entire population. So Asian juvenile rate was about a third of the white rate. The American Indian rate was about 10% below the white rate. And the black rate was more than double the white rate. So this is not something that's changing or going in the opposite direction. But all that being said, race and gender are not the most important risk factors. The two largest predictors of juvenile delinquency are parenting style. And the two styles that are most likely to predict delinquency are um, 
permissive parenting, so no consequences, and this can include neglectful or indulgent, so not paying any attention or paying too much attention. And also authoritarian parenting is the other predictor. So this is harsh discipline and refusal to actually justify that discipline other than saying things like, because I said so. And the other, um, the other predictor of juvenile delinquency is peer group association. So if you're associated with antisocial peer groups, it's more likely um, that the adolescents are left unsupervised and then will get into trouble in the areas of juvenile delinquency. Other factors that can lead into it are, as we mentioned, uh, low socioeconomic status, um, poor school performance, peer rejection, um, or ADHD. There could be um, some biological factors like higher levels of serotonin. So that could give you, you know, a difficult temperament to deal with and poor self-regulation of emotions. And actually, they've done some studies that a lot of these kids actually have a lower resting heart rate, which can lead to fearlessness and them doing more dangerous things. Now, it's also too important, important to look at psychologically that this delinquent activity, particularly the involvement in youth gangs, can be um, for protection against violence or other hardships, like even financial hardships. So this delinquent activity is actually surrounding themselves with, with resources, with people to protect them against these threats that are out there. So the individual risk factors that pop up are lower intelligence, impulsiveness, the inability to delay gratification, um, aggression, lack of empathy, and restlessness. And you can kind of see some of these risk factors show up during childhood, even before adolescence, like this aggressive behavior, um, things like language delays, or lack of emotional control. So if you have a kid who is really un unable to control his anger at a, at a really high level, it's much more likely that that child is going to grow into an adolescent um, that will um, that will be involved in, in delinquent activities. All right, so really briefly, I want to go over some of the theories that are out there about criminal activity, and most of these will be applicable to juvenile delinquency as well. So first you have rational choice. So this kind of classic way of looking at things says the causes of crime lie within you, lie within the individual, not in the environment. So they say offenders are motivated by rational self-interest, and the importance of free will is really emphasized. So this is all great, but I think we kind of know at this point that a person's surrounding world is going to affect them. It's not that they don't have free will or a choice. They do have a choice, but I'm not sure that's the most important thing going on, especially in juvenile offenders. Uh, the second theory is called social disorganization. So this focuses on the culture surrounding the person. Um, this theory attributes variation in crime and delinquency over time to the absence or breakdown of communal institutions like families, schools, and social groups. And these communal relationships will encourage cooperative, cooperative relationships among people. And this idea kind of brings forward the thought process of who you surround yourself with is important. We already talked about kind of youth gangs and how that's actually going to foster this delinquency. Whereas if the family unit is able to stay together or um, the kid is in, you know, youth groups or church groups, something like that, they have a better chance of not falling prey to juvenile delinquency. Uh, the third one is called strain theory, and this is from uh, the work of someone named Robert Merton. And he said, there are these institutionalized paths to success in our society, and crime is caused by the difficulty those in poverty have in achieving these valued goals by legitimate means. So people with poor educational atten attainment have difficulty achieving wealth and status by getting well-paying well jobs. So they're more likely to use criminal means to obtain these goals. And he suggests five adaptations 
Uh, one, innovation. Individuals who accept socially approved goals, uh, but not necessarily the socially approved means. Um, retreatism. So you reject the goals and the means for acquiring them completely. Ritualism. Um, you don't buy into the system of the socially approved means, but you lose sight of the goals entirely. And he, uh, Merton believed that drug users were in this, in this category. Fourth, conformity. So you conform to the system's means and goals and you go on that path. And fifth, rebellion. So they negate these socially approved goals and the means and they create a new system of acceptable goals and means. So there's one big difficulty in strain theories. It doesn't explore why these children from low-income families would have poor educational attainment in the first place. And also, a lot of youth crime doesn't really have economic motivation. And it also strain theory also fails to explain violent crime, um, which of course is the type of crime of any age that's going to cause the most anxiety to the public. We also have labeling theory. So this is a concept within criminology, um, and it explains deviant behavior from a social context rather than looking at the individual. And it states that once young people have been labeled as a criminal, they are much more likely to offend. Um, and we'll talk about this more later in the episode uh, with Mr. Nerdista about kind of how young offenders, especially young violent or young drug offenders, are treated. So we kind of label them as... Um, as as criminals, and we actually looked at this theory way back in the uh, in the history of pop culture case study. We did an episode on the Breakfast Club and labeling theory, and that's what that's all about. And the last one is social control theory. So this proposes that if you exploit the process of socialization and social learning, it builds self-control and can reduce this this inclination to indulge in behavior that we see as antisocial. So there's four types of control that can help prevent juvenile delinquency. One is direct. So this is we punish wrong behavior and then compliance is rewarded by parents and authority figures. Um, internal. So the young person refrains from delinquency through their conscience. Uh, indirect. So we identify with those who influence behavior. So uh, because a person's delinquent act might cause pain or disappointment to parents or other members of the, of the kind of close-knit community, then the person hopefully won't do that. And then there's control through need satisfaction. So if a person's needs are all met, then there's no point in criminal activity. But this kind of throws out the idea of of kind of antisocial personality disorder and uh, risk-taking behavior as well. So there's no real perfect way to look at this, just as with most things in psychology. All right, so I think, you know, we've covered juvenile delinquency pretty well. Um, we've covered a lot of different angles, and I think just about all of them we're going to touch on um, after we take a break, and then we'll bring Mr. Nadista back to talk about short-term 12. Hey people, my name is Peter and I am the host of a movie review podcast called Podstalgic. Over there, I take a nostalgic look and rediscover movies new and old. And what that means is I may review movies I grew up watching or other times I invite people on and we review movies I might have missed over the years. I also talk a little bit about what might be the number one hit on the radios at that time and other movies that released as well. So join me every week. You can find me on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and any other podcasting apps of your choice. All right, so we're back from our break. It's time to talk about the movie now. So first, uh, as we always do, let's talk about our kind of history with this movie. So my history with this movie is being told to see it 
since 2013. And, I, you know, like an asshole, I was like, man, you know, I'll watch it later. Uh, I'll get to it. And it just, it was one of those movies that I felt like, oh, this is going to be for me. Like, I'm, it's like, it's right up my alley as far as what I'm passionate about and the type of movie I like. I'm sure I will like it. And I just, like, kept pushing it out and pushing it out and pushing it out. And now, uh, and this is what I do with my podcast is I look for excuses to watch for movies that I should have watched by now. Uh, so, so that was my experience here. And of course, like, I, I mean, we'll talk about it, but there's, there's a lot of great things to talk about with short term 12. Everyone who told me I should see it was right. Uh, it was very, very good. Uh, it was an excellent film. So that, that was my history with it. But, uh, but what about you? Is this, uh, how many times yes. have you watched this like hundreds of times now? This is I've, like here. I've literally watched this so much and <laughs> it's weird because it's not really something that should be like rewatchable. In oh the sense yeah. It's quite, God, it's, it's quite, it's very yeah. heavy. Yeah. But there's, <laughs> I don't know. There's something There's I, I find it to be a very, um, it has its moments of, of comedy in it and oh, it yeah. has, it's very, it's a very hearty film. Like it's, mm-hmm. it sure it tackles really tough topics, but it doesn't feel somber or bleak, you know. And it has that the light at the end of the tunnel, basically. And mm-hmm. I mean, I, I saw this after I saw Brie Larson in Room. Mm-hmm. I then decided that I need to see more of her films, yeah. and so this was. There's everyone was telling me to watch it, and so I jumped head in, and it's 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 great. Right. Yeah, something a little bit off topic. It's something I kind of wonder about. So I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you. So I mm-hmm. I never want to uh, you know go on this path of like oh well actors you know they should do this type of movie and oh everyone's in the the big Hollywood blockbusters um, you know because you know they should make their money they should be comfortable. There's nothing wrong yeah. with that. But it it makes me wonder like what people feel about an actor like Brie Larson who is clearly. Mm-hmm one of our great young actresses. Like, she is phenomenal. It's the same thing with directors like Ryan Coogler. I'm like, you know, good for you. You're making Black Panther. That looks great. I'm excited to see it. But part of me, like a a part of the artist's soul in me, really wants wants to see these actors kind of stretch themselves and do different Mm -hmm. things instead of getting tied up in these long-term contracts with these, you know, these big Hollywood movies. So so what do you think about that when you see an an actor that is clearly like Oscar caliber now moving towards maybe this blockbuster area in her career? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult because you're right. Like, they have to make their money. And, and know, I do it. Blockbuster. Yeah. <laughs> if MCU is knocking on my door, here's a $12 billion contract for each movie. Like, all right. <laughs> yeah. I'll be in the 12th, the 12th Transformer film. That's fine. Yeah, sure. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but no, I, I get, I, I totally get that because when I saw that she was casted in um, Kong Skull Island, like, a part of me got really annoyed. And, and it sounds so petty to get annoyed yes. over, but you when these things happen you recognize that you're going to see these actors or actresses less in the roles you like to see them in right so for example she's um she's obviously got the marvel gig coming up and she's she's done kong skull island and i'm sure they'll bring her back for another iteration and yeah it kind of sucks because you want to see them making these types of films where it's a genuine showcase of their talent and they're not just you know another piece in a big franchise and, and formula yeah i mean the the real hope for me with with things like that is that and i think actors and directors can do this if they if they plan it out where they can you know make these big movies and then in the time in between they can make these passion pro- projects so i hope yeah that's what happens uh but it kind of makes me you know there's it's 
it reminds me kind of of the studio system way back when where people were very tied to studios and it mm. you know there's definitely like actors in the you know in the 50s and 60s and 70s that weren't so tied to that you saw some really interesting work and even as as recently as actors like uh tom cruise and leonardo dicaprio like working with these really interesting directors because they could because they became movie mm. stars right, kind of yeah. without this studio system so it'd be interesting to see uh where actresses and actors like like brie larson go uh, but anyway, that's neither here nor there. It's just something I was personally <laughs> interested in. Um, so let's get started on Short Term 12. So this is uh, written and directed by Destin Daniel Cretton, who actually has not done much. Uh, his next his next movie after this will be the movie we're pairing this with. Uh, he also yeah. wrote uh, The Shack, uh, which is terrible. Don't watch it. It's horrible. <laughs> don't don't waste your time. Uh, and I was like shocked to find out that he wrote that uh, after watching Short Term 12. Um, but in general, what did you think of the direction here? In our earlier section before we took our break, you kind of mentioned it feels uh, like there's there's a little bit of amateurishness to it. So so what yeah. did you mean exactly by that? Yeah, and and I mean it in in the most respectful way. I, I love when when movies feel organic in mm-hmm. in their visual aesthetic. So you know, there's some interesting shots, but it's not like he's being ambitious. And the re- the reason I love that is because it feels like a documentary. Yes. You know, there there are there are many moments where the camera just lingers on a character for a few seconds, and they're not talking; they're just thinking. Or Brie Larson's sat in the shower, and and the water just pouring mm-hmm. on her. Yeah. Um, or, or, or Marcus, for example, is, is staring at his fish in the fishbowl. And, you know, these moments, they feel like documentaries. They feel like an insight into the character's life. And I love that the, his, the way he directs the camera, I don't know, but it doesn't seem like it's ever on a tripod. It's almost always handheld. The camera's always relentlessly shaking. And I just really like that because it, it makes the film feel unpredictable and almost like anything can happen. Yeah, it's not only unpredictable, but it matches where they are. Yeah. I mean, like it, the movie opens and closes in the same way where you have this kid like running off trying to escape. Uh, and it's always in the middle of them having this discussion and kind of joking around as coworkers. And it's show, showing you and telling you that at any moment something could go wrong. And I think because of the camera work, you feel that in the movie. Mm-hmm. It's like it's it's constantly moving without being frenetic. Uh, And that's, that's a part of like working in a system like this, where these characters work is you always like, you can enjoy yourself. You can be friendly with people, with your coworkers, with these kids, but you always have to kind of be aware. You have to know that at any moment, someone could try to run or someone could get violent. Like you have to really be on point all the time. And I think the camera work really, really reflects that. I also like that through most of the beginning of the movie, you despite the movement i found myself not noticing the camera work because it just feels like you're there with these people you know like you mentioned that kind of documentary feel and most of the time in these sequences the camera is just following one character like as they move through this 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 home for these kids usually it's brie larson because she's i think definitely our our main character here but there's a lot of just kind of like we're just moving through her day and we're right behind her left shoulder for, for a lot of this movie, which which I think, and we'll talk about it later, but it makes her performance even more impressive because I don't think she is ever aided by the camera. I think sometimes you can aid a performance through the yeah. way you frame your shots. And this just feels like, no, we're just, we're just going to do it. We're just going to let you inhabit this character. And I'm just, you know, the cameraman will have the camera on his shoulder and we're just, we're just going to do this as if yeah. you, you were living your life and we were here and that's it. There's not a lot of tricks here. 
Yeah, and it's almost like the characters are the directors of the film. Yeah. As in just literally building off what you just said, that, that whatever they do, the camera is always there to support their movement or support their emotions. And, and yeah, it, I, I love that it feels that way because, you know, it's very easy for filmmakers um, because Cretan came out of film school and made Short Term 12, um, as in the, the short film, and then he went and he made this as, as a feature-length film. But it's very easy for, you know, these debut films to feel like they're very formulaic or they're very, they follow a structure because, mm -hmm. you know, you get taught so much in film school that you feel like you have to block like this. You have to frame <laughs> like this. You right. have to hold your camera. And I don't know, it just, it just feels really natural is the only way I can, I can describe the direction. Yeah, I think there's only a couple moments where I I feel like the movie is quote unquote directed, uh, and yeah. they and they and they work. It's not as if like oh this stands out in a bad way. One of them you mentioned is that that scene in the shower, like that feels very stylistic uh, and mm. very very focused and appropriate for that moment uh, because I think it's it's really difficult, especially for a male director to uh, to direct a scene that involves you know female nudity and emotion without feeling like we're leering. Uh, and the way that shot is framed is just about perfect, like because yeah. it's it's necessary for for that character's arc, but it doesn't feel like we are we are in a place where we're unwelcome. Uh, and I think sure. that's and that's pretty impressive. That's not easy to yeah. do. Uh, the other moment is there is a, uh, a sequence with Lucky Stanfield, who we'll talk about at length later. I promise, because I am yes. so <laughs> blown away by his performance. But there's a scene where he uh, he is he is written. Uh, he has written a song and he's rapping for one of our other main characters uh, yeah. for Mason. And the camera just zooms in on his face and stays with it. Uh, and I found that yeah. really interesting because the movie didn't do that a lot for anyone else. And I think what it's for me, what it got across was like, we are, we are almost literally like peering into this kid's brain and we are seeing him process his grief and his anger and his pain. And the fact that they didn't pull back and show anyone else's reaction, I thought was really important and a really great choice from the director, especially in a movie that is, I think, aiming to just be there. It really stood out to me as this really important moment for this character. Yeah. And, and literally in that scene as well, um, when Mason, when, when it finishes having the close up of, of Lakeith's face, um, it just goes to Mason and, and you see like his eyes are, are watered up and yeah. I, we don't, we never see his emotion all the way until the end, but it's, you know, it's almost like it mirrors what the audience should be feeling, Yeah, you know? And yeah, we'll, we'll, I, I, um, I suspect we'll talk about that scene again later. So I'll, yes. <laughs> I'll finish talking. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. The last thing I want to mention as far as uh, direction too, is I think he does a really good job at, despite the fact that we talked about the camera kind of always, you know, moving at least a little bit. I, I love that the, the movement of the camera matches the emotion of the scenes too. Uh, when things are panicked, when we have a reason to be afraid, to be worried, the, mm -hmm. the camera moves just a little bit more and it shakes just a little bit more, but never to the point where it's like uncomfortable or, you know, you get motion sickness as in like, yeah. you know, a found footage type movie, anything like that. But there is, uh, there is a scene later, very late in the movie, uh, that involves two characters being, two of our kids being in real, real danger. And the way the camera moves, the way it's, it feels, it feels panicked and yeah. it, it really heightens that scene. 
Uh, not that it needs it. That scene is heightened enough, but like that extra camera movement really like drug me into the scene. And I was just, mm. and as someone who's worked with adolescents and who works in mental health, like there were parts of this movie that almost felt like, okay, this is too real. Like this yeah. is, this is too on point. Like this is, this is scary to me as an audience member. And I, I don't know if that transfers to people outside of that world, but definitely for me, that moment when, uh, when Brie Larson is kind of running around the corner trying to find out what's going on, like brought up a sense of panic in me. Yeah. I, I, it's interesting you say that because now I really want to ask you, like, do you find that the film is respectful in regards to, to mental health and, and the treatment of, of the children? Like, do you feel like it's exploitative in any way? Um, so there's, there's a lot of different things going on here as far as mental health. I think it's, I don't think it's exploitative to the kids. I think it actually treats mm. the kids with a lot of respect, uh, which I was really happy about. I was something I was worried about, like, Oh, it's going to yeah. be overdramatic. And it's, although it's hard to be overdramatic when you're talking with we're talking about troubled teens, there's a lot of drama as a teenager, when you're well-adjusted and everything is going relatively okay, but when you have parents missing and you have suicidal tendencies and all, yeah. all the other things that are going on here, you're going to get some drama. Uh, kind yeah. of, and, you know, and I think the movie does a good job of that, of like every moment, it, God, it's something else. You know, like, okay, what's going to happen now? So you really grasp onto those moments of calm and hold on as tight as you can because those that's what keeps you coming back as a professional. Um, the, the thing I found really interesting, and I'm sure we'll talk about this more in writing, is the constant... Uh, the constant battle between the psychologists and the the people actually working at Short Term Twelve. Yes, um, yeah. and it was really interesting to me and kind of eye opening. Um, and something I'm going to keep in mind as I kind of move forward in my career is to kind of you can't as a professional you can't lose sight of the fact that people are people and it's not just a set of symptoms. It's not just like well mm. this is usually the right thing to do, so I'm going to take away this this kid's dolls and like maybe you should talk to the people who see him most. You know, and I yeah. think I think that's a really important part of therapy, especially with with younger patients that gets left out is that. You know, as a as a psychologist, I see my patients, if I'm lucky, an hour a week. Uh, there's a lot of time. There's a lot of things that go on in their life. The other, you know, the other however many hours are in a week that mm. I don't see them. So, like, you should really reach out to the people who do talk to them and get all the information you can. Yeah. Uh, so I, th I thought they dealt with that pretty well. I think there's there may be some moments between Brie Larson and her boss, which are a little overdramatic. Uh, which yeah. maybe went a little bit too far as far as as far as the writing goes, but I, I like that they brought that up. That there is this there is this kind of battle going on, and sometimes a lack of respect for people who don't have as big of a degree as you. And that's something we yeah. should always keep in mind: is that a person's lived experience is just as important as all the school that you've gone through. So, oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. All right. Um, so at this point, I think we're going to move on to the acting. Uh, so we'll start with Brie Larson. We already talked about her a little bit. Um, but this, this I feel like is the performance she should have been nominated and won an Oscar for. Like it 100%. is, room her performance in Room is great. Um, it, it is a, it's the type of performance uh, the Academy loves. You know, it yeah. is, you know, as a woman in pain, it is, you know, it's got sexual assaults. Uh, it's got her dealing with a child. Like it's got all, it's really got all those ingredients that that they really like. But I feel like this performance is more measured. Uh, and more moving to me yeah, in kind of no every doubt. way, because you not only get her struggle and what she's gone through, and we get little pieces of that. I don't think we ever really get the entire story. 
Um, but we, we get enough to know what she's gone through. But we also get her relationship with her boyfriend and we get how she's interacting with these kids and this pure, beautiful instinct to protect um, without being overdramatic about it. Like, yeah. I, I think especially the the scene where, you know, she's kind of talking of talking to this this young girl about being sexually abused and the girl can't respond is a truly beautiful moment in this film. And it would have been mm. really easy to overdo it and overwrite it and fill it with dialogue. And, you know, all we have is something very real, which is Grace, Brie Larson's character, kind of asking her these questions and saying, like, did this happen? And when she doesn't answer, she just holds her. Yeah. And, you know, at that point, we didn't really know for sure that anything had happened to Grace. Um, but that scene still works, even if nothing ever did happen to her as, as a kid. Um, but once we find out exactly how bad things were for her as, as a young girl, like that scene in, in retrospect is even Grace, more moving. Yeah. Like yeah. for her to just like, it's, it's not only she wants to protect this kid, but she wants to protect herself as a child and you get that all in this in this one scene i'm actually looking forward to re-watching this with all that information yeah it's it's definitely a scene that that grows in power and what i love most about her performance is just not only how quiet she is at times but almost uh, let's put it put it like this she has that moment where she tells um john gallagher jr's character mason that they they can't be together anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, oh no, sorry. He 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 says it to her, and there's this massive breakup, and and she comes home, and it's quiet. You know, there's no screaming, there's no shouting. There's it's just her being a human being. And the minute she steps foot into her workplace, she leaves everything behind just for those children. You know, like she yeah. doesn't carry that heartache with her. And I love just how much her character isn't overprotective. She she looks over these children, but you know if they want space, she's going to take a step back and move on to the next child. And I think that's very important because I mean you're right. Like they could have made it very dramatic. You know she's hounding this kid like tell me uh, what happened, tell me everything. I need to know. I need to help you. But right. in her quietness and and in the way she she approaches dealing with the children, it's it's a very beautiful performance. Like I, I struggle to find a performance I enjoy more of this decade you know yeah i mean it's and that that scene especially uh i know we've kind of harped on that scene a little bit but as someone who is you know had to talk to both adults and children about abuse it's it's a really tentative balance and i'm glad they didn't go that route because you know if you if you pressure a person who's having trouble opening up about something like this usually they will clam back up uh and it's another reason i love that sequence right before it where this girl tells this story uh, that tells you everything you need to know about the situation yeah. she's living in. Because people in general aren't going to come to you as a friend or as a therapist and say, like, so here's the deal. My dad's assaulting me. Uh, he's <laughs> yeah. he's raping me on a weekly basis. Like, you're not going to hear that. You're going to get people dancing around it because it's terrifying. And I think yeah. this movie also has a lot of really interesting things to say about what it feels like to be abused. Not just the physical nature of it, but the emotional trauma. There's 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 a line in the movie about like kind of always feeling like you're being watched. No no matter where yeah. you are, even if that person isn't in the room. And then of course, again, when you find out what Grace has gone through early in her life, you know she's not talking about just this kid. She's yeah. still talking about herself. Like she still feels watched, even as a twenty-something. 
like removed from her family. Like she's not talking that she's not connected to dad anymore, but there's still, there's still that feeling of being watched and, and that, and that pain is still there. And I think her, her performance of that. And there's, there's another scene where she shares her, her wounds, her cutting wounds with this girl. It was another yeah. really beautiful, powerful moment that, I mean, if there's ever a moment that could, that could be overplayed and overdramatic, it's, it's someone talking about self harm. And I liked how matter of fact that Grace yeah. was about what she had done and, and what happened and, and her performance there. I mean, it's, I, I can't think of a single scene that Brie Larson is in that would be improved by a different take. Like she is so good in mm. every moment of, of this movie. And, you know, there are lots of reasons I want to rewatch this, but she's at the top of the list. Like it's an impressive performance. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a very commanding performance in the sense that you're right. Like that scene where she just lifts up her trouser leg and, and she shows yeah. the cuts. It's, yeah, it's, it's easy to overact that scene. You know, it's easy to start crying. Or, but she she almost wears them with with pride, like almost like she's overcome this this demon, you know. And right. and she also has them as a reminder of what she's gone through and why she does what she does for this for these children. And I don't know, it's it's a very it's a very original and very organic performance. There's nothing that oversells her situation or, or anything like that. Yeah, absolutely. I think the only other performance that rivals her in this movie is Lakeith Stanfield mm-hmm, uh, as Marcus. Yeah. Like, just stunned me in this movie. Like, it, there is a scene in this movie he was in that moved me to tears. Like, he is incredible in this. And I immediately, after I watched the movie, uh, tweeted out on my Twitter account, uh, like, why is Lakeith Stanfield not a star? Like, he yeah. is so good in everything I've ever seen him in. He is fantastic he deserves all of the roles and like for him to do this so early in his career like this role like this this character i think probably has the most complete arc in the entire film like he's introduced as the kind of very stereotypical angry young black male Mm. you know like kind of shouting at people and not talking to people like being you know quiet and kind of full of rage um but as the movie goes we get more and more keys to him. Uh, and I think yeah. like there was never a moment in this performance where I felt like he was performing. Like I have met kids like this. Like I was just mm-hmm. like, Oh my God, you have, you have taken a real life. And I don't know if any of this is, you know, if any of his character was derived from his own experiences, but it wouldn't surprise me if it was because it just felt yeah. so, so real. And I was, you know, I immediately recognized him because he's become a little bit more known. Like he had a small part in Get Out uh, earlier this year. Yeah, so, he did. Yeah. So I know who Lakeith Stanfield is. Uh, he was also in a Netflix movie called War Machine, which is not good, uh, but he is excellent <laughs> in it. Like he is, he's yeah. one of those actors that just stands out as as a great performer, even when he's in a movie that's kind of beneath his talents. Uh, that's definitely an example of that. But like this may be his best performance, and that's not to you know, uh, cast any aspersions on anything else he's done. It's just that good. It is. Yeah. And, and you, you mentioned if that performance, you know, he drew anything from personal experiences and I've read that he, he wrote the lyrics, that scene where he, where he raps, he wrote those lyrics. Um, so, and apparently that came from a place where he's kind of gone through similar things growing up. And so I feel like that's what makes his performance so good. And for me, what, what's most captivating is his eyes are always glossy and they're always red and he always looks on the verge of, of breaking or crying or, you know, doing something just crazy. And 
you know, you want to calm him down, but his his unpredictability is it's really captivating. And yeah, that, that again we'll talk about it later. But that scene where where he raps is is mind blowing and yeah. it's very moving. Yeah, and totally. also I love I love I love the little anecdotes that the film begins and ends on yes. regarding his character. I almost feel like the film is about him. I mean, it's yeah. not, but it kind of is. And I mean, you, you could argue that it's about every single child in in the film, but really, for it to end and close on him and to have such a focus on his character, I don't know. It, it just seems like a very, a very, a, a film driven by his character, really. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good point, especially the story the the film ends on, which is wonderful and heartwarming, and I think we all yeah. needed it by the end of this movie. Um, I also think John Gallagher Jr. is good here. Like, I don't think he... Um, like, the movie's not about him. He does have one really powerful scene, uh, which, I, which we'll talk about in favorite scenes, but I also think he is a wonderful kind of person to play off of for Brie Larson. Yeah. Like, I think he's needed, uh, and he doesn't stand out in a lot of the scenes, but he's not meant to. Like that is that is what his character is. I feel like, but the I kind of feel like the weak link here is an actor I really like, uh, who is Rami Malek, um, who's fine. Uh, I almost felt like I, I felt like I knew what they're trying to do, where it's like, okay, we're gonna bring in this new person, so that is kind of your audience surrogate in a lot of ways. Yeah. Like, oh my god, look what's happening. And I felt like it wasn't really needed. Like, I feel like we could have just thrown ourselves into that opening sequence with them kind of telling a story without having so much of the early focus be on like, well, let's walk you through your day and, you know, you're going to make this mistake by calling someone underprivileged. Although I did really like that sequence because that is very real. When you first, when you first start at a job after you've been trained in any kind of mental health, you have all these like buzzwords in your head yeah, and you, and you forget that you're talking to like human beings and not psychology majors. Uh, so you say things that people could take offense to and you, yeah. and he's certainly not meaning it that way. And Rami Malek is very endearing and, and has that kind of look on his face after he's crossed that line of being so apologetic. And it's a good performance, but I just felt myself wondering, like, are we focusing too much on Nate uh, and not enough on, on Grace and Mason and, and all these yeah. other characters that I'm much more interested in. Yeah. I, I felt the same way. And I don't know about, I don't know if you've watched Mr. Robot. I've watched uh, like half of the first season and he's tremendous and yeah, he's great. My, but my, my problem is after watching that, I struggle to see him in any other role. I just uh. feel like, <laughs> I, I sure. feel like he's someone who's been typecast for so long as, you know, the social creep or the, or the outcast or the, right. the internet dude. Right. right. And <laughs> so when, when you see, when you see him in a film like short term 12, it's, I don't know. Like I, cause you're used to getting a certain type of, emotional connection to a character of his you know you're mm-hmm. supposed to connect with him being an outsider but here he's almost like the comedic value you yeah know, in in the in the beginning when they chase the kid and he's just sat there and he's told to hold the kid's legs and mason just starts continues his story about shitting himself right right and it <laughs> and he just looks so confused and i suppose he adds comedic value but I just I struggle to see him in any role now after Mr. Robot. Just yeah, I also he's been typecast. I also think he, he doesn't change much in this movie. Yeah, you know he's he's still kind of the comedic uh, the comedic relief throughout the movie. Like there's a little yeah. bit of growth, uh, but there's not much to it. It felt like it felt like the movie was posing itself at least in the beginning of the film to have this 
you know, move forward to a point where it's like, okay, now we transition to, to Nate and, and what's going on with him. And that never happens. So it feels like, it feels like a bit of a weird feint that the movie does that, that I'm not like really a big fan of, but definitely yeah. not anything, you know, bad enough where I'm like, Oh, this movie is bad now. Like it's definitely not. It's a, it's a mm. good, a very good to great movie. And it's just like, it's a weird, it's a weird framing choice for me yeah. uh, that they chose. But, uh, but speaking of framing, so now we're going to move to, to the writing. Uh, I think this is brilliantly written actually. Like this is, this is one of my favorite scripts that we've ever kind of covered on the show. Like I think it's mm. it's tremendous. It's so real. It almost doesn't feel like a script. Like I don't want to negate anything that he did. Uh, but it's one of those movies that feels so organic that you're like, really, someone yeah. wrote this? Because this feels like this is just happening right now. And I but I really like the the kind of opening and closing kind of framing device that, that you kind of talked about where it's like stories about, about these kids and about the, and about the struggles. And I love that it starts with, it starts with a story that's kind of scary. <laughs> it's funny, but it's still kind of like, Oh, these kids are like threatening your life essentially. And it yeah. ends with this really happy story, you know, uh, about Marcus and about how far he's come and, and the man he's becoming who he is now. And I really like that setup where the beginning is meant to kind of worry you and the ending is meant to like remind you that this is short term and these kids leave. Mm. And yes, some of them go through terrible things. Some of them die, but some of them go on and are successful yeah. <laughs> and have relationships and go up, go up for dates. And they, they live a life after all of these horrible things that they've gone through. Like you don't, you don't lose them all. I mean, that's something that as a therapist, you have to remember, especially if you're working with addiction or working with kids this age, a lot of a lot of people are just going to kind of disappear and you're never going to know. So when you do get some closure with with a kid or with a patient, it's really nice and I like that they had that moment at the very end. Yeah, I I I love the writing here as well. When I first watched it though, cuz this is this is a really weird progression because I I agree with you like it's it's one of my favorite scripts in in recent years. When I first watched it though, um I struggled with the dialogue because it felt mm. like you know, when, when you watch a film and you can tell a, one character should not have the same range of vocabulary as another, mm. or, you know, there might be a big age difference or, you know, there might be so, like a social barrier or, or something like that. And, you know, sometimes even still now, like I love the script, but sometimes, you know, Brie Larson sounds like Rami Malek, Rami Malek sounds like mm. John Gallagher Jr. They all have the same, you know, words that they'll, they'll recycle, but... Mm. The reason I feel like that helps is because uh, we spoke about it being like a documentary, right? And so it just, because it feels so organic and because the performances are so good, you almost overlook that. Right. Uh, and it almost helps the film because it doesn't, it doesn't feel like there's an awareness about the script. You said, you said mm -hmm. yourself, you said the film almost feels like a script wasn't written, right? you know, and, and it's that de it definitely feels that way. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. I think the other thing it does really well, and this is something that I really noticed because of kind of the line of work I'm in, is how quickly connection and disconnection happen uh, in this movie with these kids. Like there's no, when you're, when you're working with people in general who are in pain, there's no, there's no recipe for connection. There's no like, well, I say these nine things and then we have a turnaround and everything's okay now. Like sometimes it's just sitting down with someone and listening while they yell or it's holding them down or it's uh, drawing with them in the case of this movie. Like there's these little yeah. moments of connection where 
you just need to shut the fuck up <laughs> and be there with this person in their pain. Yeah. You know, and I thought this this dealt with that really well. And the other thing it did is that, okay, just because you have a connection doesn't mean that everything is solved. Like, I mm -hmm. love that there's these moments where like you're connected, these two people are connected. And then like literally seconds later, the kid makes a run for it. Like there's no, yeah. there's no special thing you can do that will make this kid stay within the grounds and start to recover. Like they're, especially after, after everything that these characters have gone through and they have a moment of connection, you as the audience want them to stay and you want them to keep connecting. But actually, usually what happens is connecting, especially as, as a kid with a stranger is terrifying. Like someone is seeing you for who you are. They're seeing your pain, this thing you have hidden from everyone in your life, sometimes even yourself. And then mm. you showed someone and you immediately draw back. And I thought this movie did a masterful job of showing that. And you always have these moments as, you know, whichever kid you're focusing on is making a run for it or hiding drugs or, you know, hitting someone with a wiffle ball bat. You always have this feeling of like, oh, man, we were so close. Like we were doing yeah. so well. And you really feel that. Like you feel the, the pain of the kids, but you also feel the pain of these counselors. These people yeah, who work definitely. with these kids and they just want them to succeed. And I think a lot of that also is not just the writing, but comes down to the the expressions on the faces of Brie Larson on, and John Gallagher Jr. Whenever these things happen, like especially John Gallagher Jr. Actually, I think his crowning moments are when he's holding these kids down and just like, you know, just dealing with it. You know, yeah. having a good sense of humor about it. And, you know, even when people are getting spit on, that's maybe my favorite Rami Malek moment in this movie is, <laughs> is not that he's getting spit on, but his reaction to it. Because John Gallagher <laughs> Jr. just goes, how are you doing? Like, not great. Like, it's just like, and these are the interactions you have in a workplace like that. But I really loved those moments of connection and disconnection being so close to the surface. Yeah. I mean, what I love as well is that there's, you're right, There's there's no way of, handling each kid you know there isn't a formula or there isn't uh and like you said nine things you can say to make them feel better and they'll immediately open up where uh, and and in this film you see that perfectly like for example with um the girl who who Brie Larson connects with she it's drawing you know drawing with her helps her open up with um Lakeith's character it's shaving his head or yeah. you know because you learn about his mum hitting him over the head and and all of that stuff and you know with with Luis for example it's sports and you even the characters we don't interact with you see the girls braiding each other's hair mm -hmm. or or listening to music or, or watching tv and there's these different ways of dealing with every single child rather than saying the same thing over and over again and I find it to be a very weirdly for a film like this it's very respect very respectful yeah. because it's you know it's easy to you deal with so many different people, you know, you're dealing with victims of sexual abuse, victims of, of, you know, verbal abuse of, of, you know, all these different things. And I don't know, it's very hard to offend, you know, and right. for, from a, like from a personal perspective, you know, I can't speak for everyone, but it does seem like a very respectful film. Yeah. Yeah. I also like that they included things like the uh, child protective services report. Um, as a professional, that's something that is the bane of our existence. I think if there would be any reality to that scene, it probably would have taken her, you know, an hour just to write that out because it is really <laughs> tedious work. Uh, but I was really glad that they showed that, that it wasn't just like, well, I'm going to make a phone call and try and make this happen. Like there is a process to it. You get also, and it's another actually great moment of nonverbal acting from Brie Larson. Like as she's writing, like you see the pain, you yeah. see the rage on her face. Uh, and I thought, mm -hmm. and it was something that easily 
easily could have been left out of the movie. Like she could have just had that confrontation um, with with the psychologist and that been it. And that would have been plenty, but I was glad. And it actually gave Brie Larson like another really great moment that maybe gets overlooked when people watch this movie is like the emotion that is pouring out of her as, as the ink is like pouring out of her pen at the same yeah. time. I thought that was, it was a really interesting choice to make. And I also liked that this movie comes full circle in a number of different ways. Like whether you're talking about the pregnancy plot or the way the movie ends with a chase, just like it opens with a chase. Yeah. It felt like it felt nicely tied up, but in a way that wasn't like kind of pompous and kind of overwrought and kind of like, well, we have to tie everything up with a bow. Like it ties the movie up, but it also lets you know that things continue. Like, yes, yeah. we went through all this painful stuff, but now it's another day and we got to make sure this kid doesn't run off the grounds again. Like yeah, it's all, we start it's over. Like the, the structure's there, but it's invisible. Right, you know, like we we don't we don't spot it perfectly. And I remember when I first watched the film, and and I read someone's review, and I'd love to remember who it is because obviously I'd like to shout shout them out. But someone said you can watch it from beginning to end, and it's an uplifting story. If you watch it backwards, obviously it's impossible to watch backwards. But if you follow the thread of the film backwards, it's a very sad and very um, dark film because, yeah. you know, that situations aren't resolved. And because it has this this um, circular narrative, following it backwards almost gives the film a very melancholic tone. Mm. And, I, you know, it, it just it gives it another layer. And, and that's why I love how it's written, because, you know, we can look at stuff like like dialogue. That's one of the first things we discuss when talking about writing. But really, it's the structure of this film. The reason I love it is because there feels like there is no structure. Yeah. But if you if you look at it closely enough, it's definitely there. Yeah, absolutely. Completely agree. All right, so really briefly, let's talk about the production value. I don't think there'll be a lot to talk about here because this is such a simple <laughs> movie. But what I really like about it is it would be easy to make a movie like this with so many rooms and so many hallways and corridors where you never got a feeling of what this building was and, and how it was laid out. But like, I feel like if you brought me to a set that was built like this, you know, I could find Marcus's room. Like I would know exactly yeah. where to go. And I think, I think uh, the director here has a really good eye at kind of at building not only the structure of his script, but the structure of his sets where, you know, where everything is. And so even in those moments late in the movie where Brie Larson is running through, trying to find, uh, trying to find Marcus and what he's done, yeah you you never feel lost like i feel like okay i know exactly where she's going to turn i know where she's going to go here and not every movie is like that it's something we usually don't talk about in smaller movies but it's really important if a movie is just set in an apartment say we should know where the bedroom is and where the kitchen is and where where the bathroom is like we should know all these things and it felt like in this way it would have been really easy to get lost here yeah. but it's so well structured in that way that i never felt that well, yeah, uh, the film, the the production design of the film, the the way it looks and, and the setting is actually done by someone who's solely worked in documentaries, Rachel right. Myers. She's a hmm. female art director and production designer. And, you know, you get that, you get that certainly in Short Term 12. We've, we've spoken about the documentary feel to the film. And it's interesting to look back and see that all she's done really is production designs for either reality TV shows or documentaries. And I feel, and you're right, knowing where the rooms are and all of that, it seems like a small thing, but familiarity in this film is so important. Yeah. You build a connection to these characters, you know, Marcus's bedroom, because these are their worlds. You know, the, Marcus's bedroom is 
a hundred percent an extension of his mind and and yeah. his life, you know. And if you don't have that familiarity in the in the set and the production design, you, it almost feels like it's not natural, you know. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. All right, so let's uh, let's talk about our favorite scenes. So, would you like to start? What's one of your favorite scenes of Short Term Twelve? Okay, so I'll just we'll just get it out of the way. It's it's the rap scene. Yeah. It don't matter now. Damn near eighteen. All the pretty pictures in my fucking head is faded. And when I think about that trick that raised me, I think about sick, cause the bitch is crazy. Fuck that bitch, nigga, fuck that pain. Your body's in the ditches, I just turned up brain. I mean, I can't see how you claim it. You be a mock, doctor snatch me out to snatch a pair of evil eagle claws. Ho, 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 slut, fuck the way you want it. Got your young, dumb son, pitching pigeons for money. I mean, it's colder than the bitch when it's sunny. Blows raining down on the globe. Got the nerve to tell me you love me. I said again, again, sell it again. Bitch, I'm 10. Let me go outside and function with friends. You say you my, you mother, you the father fucking queen. I say, all right, I love her, so I flip it again. Nah, not this time, bitch, because I'm stronger than you. Not this time, bitch, swinging harder than you. Nah, not this time, bitch, you ain't leave me a choice. You just a body in a ditch and the brain of a boy. All fucked up now, damn near 18. All the pictures in my past ain't never fading. I'm always wishing for something amazing. But when your life is shit, then it ain't no trade-in. So put me in your book so you know what it's like to live a life not knowing what a normal life's like. Put a label on my head so you know what it's like to live a life not knowing what a normal life's like. Look into my eyes so you know what it's like. Look into my eyes so you know what it's like. Look into my eyes so you know what it's like to live a life not knowing what a normal life's like. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't know what to say, man. It's cool, man. I just need to shave my head. Um, a hundred percent, my favorite film because. It has so much potential to be really crap, you know, and really, you know, oh, (laughs) like, here's here's our black male rapping. Right. Yes. Our only black male character. Yeah. Oh, here we go. Yeah. Yeah. And or it could and it could very easily be like, oh, a white dude wrote the lyrics or or a, a, a guy who's clearly not versed in in music, you know writing these lyrics it it could it could feel that way it could feel like the words aren't coming out of his mouth like he's reading off of paper but the minute he starts like the first two three seconds after he starts is it's so impactful yeah i mean that scene it's it's interesting because i I think brie larson gives the best performance but i think this is the best scene in the film and she's not in it at all, uh, which tells you how well balanced this movie really is. Uh, and I was definitely like, as the scene started, kind of like, oh God, this could be, this could ruin the movie. Like, legitimately, yeah. if this scene doesn't work, the movie doesn't work. Like, it's a linchpin. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it doesn't involve everyone, but it involves like how we process and how we deal with emotion. And like you said, a lot of this movie is really focused on Marcus. So if this goes wrong, this goes really wrong. But it just felt so true and so pure in this moment yeah. that we really get to see what he's going through through the only way he knows how to express it. I love that pretty much through the rest of the film, especially when he's not angry, he barely speaks. Yeah. Like he's monosyllabic. And this is like so indicative of kids in situations like this where they're not going to open up. They're going to do everything they can to close down until 
someone like Mason shows interest in something that he is passionate about in his music. And that is, that is something that like, as someone who's done uh, segments of this job, that is something that happens where you're like, you know, uh, I need to find a way to reach this kid. And that means he's going to, you know, play me his, his tracks or sing or rap. And he's going to curse a lot. I just have to like, let the rules go for a second and just let him process this. Like, and I love that they have that here where, you know, not, not every rule is created equal. Um, mm. and, and I really like that they have that moment where he just kind of says like, you know, I'm not going to tell. Like, yeah. so then they just kind of sit down and have this moment. And it is, and like I mentioned, the way that it is filmed, I think really drives it home. Like that yeah. we are focused on him purely. Uh, and, you know, there was a moment as I'm getting teary, I'd like feel a little ridiculous for getting teary. And then you mentioned as they like, as they kind of pan backwards and you see, that Mason is affected too. Mm. It kind of okays it for the audience. Like, yes, this is what you should be feeling. This is painful. Look at what this kid has gone through. Like this kid has literally told you his life story in two minutes of this song. And it's, it's absolutely beautiful. Uh, And I think it, it really, it really kind of holds the movie together. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting as well that the two main kids, Marcus and and Jaden express themselves through art. Yeah. The, the, the most, the, the most the most like insight we get of their background is either through music or through drawing yeah you know and, and I, f- I find that to be as well really interesting because you're right like no one's going to come up to you and spill their entire past you know you, right you'll get it in different in different fragments so music drawing whatever it be and and i feel like this scene as well as the scene where um, brie larson is drawing with Jaden, is yeah it's, it's they are the most powerful scenes for me in the film Right. And I think there's a lot in this movie about about bringing this internal pain and almost wanting a physical manifest manifestation of it. Um, like whether you're talking about the self-harming or like the cutting, even though like, you know, I felt like cutting is enough. I don't really need this kid cutting Y into her arm. That seemed like yeah. a little overwrought, although that does happen. Um, there are kids who cut themselves with messages in their arms and their legs and that kind of stuff. But I felt like, okay, we don't, we don't need it to be that on point. Like we, we get it that this kid is, this kid is really going through it, but mm. that scene. And then you have the shaving sequence where he keeps asking, like if there's bumps on his head, if it looks weird because he has been, you know, kind of, he's been tortured emotionally and physically by his yeah. parent. And like, you're just assuming that everyone can see it. Uh, and, I, and I like that part of Marcus's character that he, I think there's a lot of his rage is he feels like everyone sees him as weak and he has to constantly push him away because he has been, he has been beaten and he has been bruised. And, and mm. that scene, like him wanting to shave his head, but like you could see, like he doesn't want to look in the mirror. And it's another really powerful moment where he refuses to make eye contact until, until he has this discussion. Yeah. Um, with Grace and Mason about like what they can see and, and, and who he is now. And I just thought like, wow, what a, what a fantastic moment. And again, like done with not a lot of dialogue and it's just yeah. all performance, most of it nonverbal. And I really, really appreciated that. Um, the only other scene I really want to talk about is I, I mentioned that John Gallagher Jr. has a shining moment. And for me, it's the, it's the dinner sequence with his foster family, um, yes. which I thought was just wonderful. Um, and gave us a, a cue into why Mason does what he does. And not only why he works there, but why he's 
in general, he's the calm one. He's the one who like kind of disarms with a sense of humor. And you find out that he wasn't always like that, that he was like, he was a punk kid, like all these kids. So he mm. knows where they're coming from. So he's never, it, it, because like all, all the way up to that point to me, it feels like this character is barely real because nothing affects him. Like nothing gets to him. Like no matter what these right. kids do, he's like, you know, whatever, you know, how's my, how's my, how's my cupcake? You know, like that's his <laughs> kind of, you know, actually really love that moment too, because like yes. there's, there's a moment of reality there where Brie Larson in her performance, like wants to laugh, but knows it's not appropriate. And she's just <laughs> like, God damn it. Like, stop it. Don't, don't make me laugh right now. This kid is going through it. But I, that, that foster parent sequence also like really affected me emotionally. Like his, his mm. speech to his parents, like, and all these people who they've taken care of, you know, and he's, and they passed the torch to him and he's not bringing them into his home yet, but he is taking care of these kids too. Like he's, he's taken yeah. the lessons he's learned from his foster parents. And instead of going the opposite direction and quote unquote, living his own life and going back to whatever he wanted to do, he's like, no, this is important and it's the right thing to do. So I really love that scene too. I feel like another scene we definitely have to discuss is one that if you don't cry at, you're a heartless demon. Okay. And you need to be banished from planet Earth is um, the moment where the sonogram, the scene of the sonogram. Yeah. And yeah, like when when Brie Larson and, and John Gallagher Jr. start crying and you see the baby's heartbeat, it ties back to that theme of life, you know, and, and celebrating life. Yeah. And, and, you know, the... It's the small, it's the small moments that we live for. You know, you you have all of these big important things that happen. You know, Marcus cuts himself, Jaden runs away. We find out about Brie Larson's sexual abuse, but that small moment where it's just celebrating life and and the heartbeat of the baby is is by far for me personally the most moving moment in the entire film. Yeah, and I think it it also like we talked about this movie coming full circle in a lot of ways. The fact that. The movie starts with her, you know, making an appointment for an abortion and her story kind of ends with making the decision to to bring a life into this world, despite all the pain that she sees every day, not only feels in herself, but she sees these kids and how much how much bad is out there. So it's like it's a really moving moment for her and Mason to make this decision to move forward and become parents. You know, I think if you work in an uh, in in a job like that, it would be really easy to like like I can't do that. I can't yeah. I can't do this twenty four hours a day and go to work and do this. Like it's it's too much. So it becomes a really important decision. So I like I like that moment too. And I'm a person who has chosen not to have kids, so it's it's yeah. very rare that a that a scene like that will affect me. But it definitely did. I was just like this this feels right for these characters. Mm. You know, so you kind of leave your own stuff at the door and watch these characters grow yeah. and have a complete arc. And it totally makes sense. And it, and it fits the film and it fits these characters. And that's, you know, again, another reason why this script is so good. They could have left that out and left it up to chance. Like, well, who knows what they'll do? You know, yeah. it's, it's about these these kids in this short term 12. Uh, but I like that they kind of they they picked that back up and figured Definitely. out where these characters were going. All right. Um, so at this point, we will talk about the theme. I think the theme is pretty obvious. So we're talking about juvenile delinquency. Uh, and, you know, most of these kids in these in these homes are juvenile delinquents. That's how they get there. I mean, there's some that aren't. There's some that have self-harmed and they end up in a place like this. Uh, but a lot of these kids are. So as you were watching the movie and kind of thinking about juvenile delinquency, like what what jumped out at you as, as you were watching the movie? 
Well, for me, it's it's how they subvert the the tag of being a delinquent, right? Yes. And this is done primarily through the character of Marcus. We hear that he used his mum through that song, for example. We we learn that his mum made him sell drugs yeah. as a kid, you know. And you know, there's there's several moments in the film where he says he he's scared he'll end up in prison or he doesn't care about going to prison. And other people are saying are speaking about prison to him. Yet by the end, we hear that he's working in an aquarium and drinking cappuccino, right? right. <laughs> and it it totally subverts the idea of delinquents remaining delinquents. You know, we we often hear about these places where you know th- these kids will go to and then ultimately nothing happens or you know they remain the same but here it really shows that they're more than just you know paper thin offenders right. they're they're human beings that some things that you do could change the outcome of their life like yes. if Brie Larson if Mason doesn't sit there and listen to him rap you know if if the minute he swears in his song Mason's like whoa you can't swear you know like right. you're going down a level or something like that you could kill that person's ambition of of just changing and and having some positivity in their life forever whereas by sitting down you've you changed their life in in a great way yeah i think you've hit the most important point that i kind of wanted to bring up and that's i think we have especially in american culture we have this view of like someone like once you've made a mistake once you've gone to jail then that's kind of it you know like Mm. we we make a show of like it's a department of correction but really it's just you know it's just like, well, once you're a criminal, you're a criminal forever. Um, and I think there's a lot of people that think about this, especially there's been a lot of studies with like, especially young black males. If you look at the way that they are seen by, by especially white society at large, like once they've committed a crime, then it's like, oh, there's no hope. And we view them differently than we view, you know, offenders uh, that are white or offenders that are Asian or Hispanic, like there is a definite, like we have this, and a lot of it is this mentality that goes back to times of slavery is this kind of, you know, the violent black male, like the, the black bull, whatever, whatever you want to throw in there. So I think it's really, his background is really important here too. And it's really important that there are people out there that want to help him and want to get him to a place where he can move on with his life. Because if he starts committing these crimes after the age of 18, then he's in real trouble, you know, then it's something that doesn't get taken off your record. And like, regardless of whether people are out there trying to help or, you know, giving you a quote unquote second chance or third chance, it's not going to matter. Whereas like this may be his last opportunity to kind of turn his life around and do something positive. And I think it's, it's wonderful that a movie like this exists that we have, we have two things. I mean, we have the, the story in the beginning with this kid, you know, who's, obviously pretty violent it wouldn't surprise me if he was a juvenile offender and he ends up dead you know and i mm. love that they have that moment of like oh i don't i don't like that part of the story yeah i don't that's that's not what i want to tell i find it interesting that the the female character brie larson is the one who gives out that information and mason is kind of the the bleeding heart who doesn't even want to really talk about how that story ends and it's interesting again that mason tells the story of how marcus ends up by the yeah. end of this movie. Uh, so I love that we have that. We have hope here. It's not just like, oh, well, this kid is a quote unquote bad seed. He's a bad kid. So so there's no real hope for him. And I think the movie really posits that if you care about these kids, mm. if you help these kids, then they have hope. You know, yeah. whereas if a place like this didn't exist and they're just, you know, stuck in the system or stuck, you know, in a different kind of home, 
then there, then that hope goes away. So I think like that's really the final message of this movie. I find it interesting that it starts off with a hopeless story and ends up with a hopeful story and gives you somewhere mm. to go. And you mentioned exactly. like looking at this backwards, it's very dark and looking at it going forwards, it's still dark, but there's a glimmer of light at the end of this movie, which I really, yeah. really kind of adore that that's where the movie ends up. And as as well, like it's very it's very easy for the film to show you these characters and force you to pity them, right. you know. And and you know that's that that would be a very disrespectful way of of showing these characters and these and these children really. And yeah, the, what I love is that there's not any moment there's not any moment where you know there's a conversation where Brie Larson is is hounding someone to tell her what's wrong. You know, there's there's interactions that show a respect toward their situation and shows that you know you're not you're not supposed to watch these these characters and look at them and almost see them as oh i shouldn't turn out that way or if you're watching a kid be like oh make a note of not to turn out that way it is essentially a film that tells you to care but also give people their space try and find like a level playing field whether it's music or drawing or or braiding hair or watching mm-hmm. tv you know you don't just go straight for the jugular and yeah. ask them to tell you their entire life story and i feel like in that manner it really does apply to the theme because it's again it's easy to paint these these children as they've done something bad in the past or they've been around bad things and so that's all they'll know for the rest of their life whereas almost every character we we see in this film like that we spend a lot of time with for example Jaden and and Lakeith's character they get a positive resolution you know in some in some way or another like Jaden clearly gets you know she gets away from her father you know and 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 Lakeith goes on to drink cappuccinos and and have a girlfriend possibly and yeah it's just it's it's great really yeah yeah I totally agree all right um so that's it for short term 12 um a movie like even though we've talked about a lot of the things that happen I still think if you haven't seen it listen to this whole thing like you should definitely watch it it's a very moving film and very underseen uh, from just a couple mm. years ago. So you definitely check that out. So the movie we're tying that with, though, um, is a movie also written and directed uh, by Destin Daniel Cretton and starring Brie Larson, and that is The Glass Castle. So it says, A young girl comes of age in a dysfunctional family of nonconformist nomads with a mother who's an eccentric artist and an alcoholic father who would stir the children's imagination with hope as a distraction to their poverty. All right. Uh, so I got to say, like, seeing this trailer, if I had not seen Short Term 12... I would just have been rolling my eyes through the whole thing. Like I'm Mm. giving this a chance because of the past, because of who is like, I like Brie Larson a lot. And Naomi Watts is also in this and she's kind of always really good. Even when she makes really poor choices, as far as the movie she's in, which she seems to have done a lot lately. Uh, Especially if you look at movies like the book of Henry, uh, which is kind of a garbage fire of a movie. (laughs) And you keep watching her going like, why are you doing this to yourself? Like, I hope maybe you got paid a lot of money to do this. Uh, And also Woody Harrelson. um, So it's, it feels like to me, it felt like eccentric to the point of mockery almost like it's like purposefully eccentric. And that always has me worry. Uh, about a movie like this, but I'm giving it a chance just because of who's involved. What about you? What were your thoughts when you saw the trailer? Yeah, I I really I like it because again, it seems like an exploration of of family and, mm-hmm. and life in general, right? Um, it does seem a bit too 
kooky and eccentric in the sense i don't know how it's going to work in terms of a structure you know it's clearly very flashback heavy yes and it's clearly hopefully going to tie everything together the reason i'm now worried though is because you said that the shack is terrible right (laughs) oh god it's really bad and so and so (laughs) this um the glass castle is co-written by that the guy who who wrote that with um Destin Daniel Cretton. So that's, <sighs> yes. yeah, that's a bit of a concern. Obviously, I haven't seen the film, but other than that, I mean, the trailer, it looks great, you know. Um, it, looks it looks way like more it... professional than yeah. Short Term 12 does. Like, it, you mentioned that kind of amateur style. That is not here, at least in the trailer. Mm. Like, this feels very polished from an aesthetic mm. point of view. Yeah, definitely. And it, I don't, like, I really, yeah, I love the aesthetic. I love the way it looks. And, Honestly, the only reason I'll watch it is because of Brie Larson and the director, but it could, you know, turn out to be really terrible. Yeah, I mean, I hope it's not. I want to put that out that I'm really, yeah. I really want this to be good. And Brie Larson is one of those actors who has earned my trust at this point. And, you know, we spent mm. five minutes earlier in this episode talking about like, oh, I don't want her just to do these, you know, <laughs> King Kong and Marvel movies. Like, okay, here, she's doing a movie yeah, that is smaller in scale. It is about an emotional topic and not just, you know, not a blockbuster. So I will definitely be seeing it. We'll definitely be covering it here. So we'll just, we'll think good thoughts and hope yeah, the, hope for the best for the Glass Castle. All right. Uh, one more time before you take off, why don't you tell people uh, how they can contact you online? So you can find me pretty much anywhere at Mr. Nadista. That's Twitter and YouTube and all everything like that. Instagram as well. And I'd also like to make a point of not following David on Twitter. Oh, I'm mean on he Twitter. He's an evil human being. <laughs> I'm nice on the podcast. I'm nice in DMs, but on Twitter, just just cruel and heartless. <laughs> You're not wrong. All right, till over time. Thank you. Uh, thank you for being here for this show. Thanks for having me on. Man. All right, everyone, thank you for listening to another episode of Pop Culture Case Study, and thanks to Mr. Nerdista for joining us once again. So if you like what you're hearing, there's a bunch of ways you can let me know that. Uh, The best way, I think, is to email me. I've been wanting to get emails lately, so that's popculturecasestudy at gmail.com. Or you can follow me on Twitter, at PCCaseStudy. We, of course, have an Instagram page and a Facebook page and a Facebook group. So really, any way you want to contact me, I am around. Also, if you have some extra cash, we have a Patreon page. So patreon.com slash popculturecasestudy, and there you can donate to the show on a per-episode basis. It's a great way to get some cool rewards and to support your local independent podcast. So the next time you hear me, we will be doing a new release review on The Glass Castle, of course, to pair with what we just covered, Short Term 12. All right, until then, I will be here diagnosing your favorites and judging you for what you watch. All right, so there's no real outtake this week. Sorry about that. It just didn't just didn't work out. But you know what is really funny? Is that last week when we covered Detroit, we almost covered the Dark Tower. You're a gunslinger, right? There are no gunslingers. Not anymore. Well, I guess that's one thing they got right. 
There will be no more gunslingers. Aw, oh, so sad. Sorry, Mr. Nerdista. Maybe it'll work on TV. Understand.